I want to share with you a story. This is a story about a carpenter. This carpenter was out in the woods. This was before the days where he could just go down to Home Depot and buy some boards. He was out in the woods getting some wood. And uh, he cut down a, some cedars, or maybe it was a cypress or an oak tree, I don't remember for sure. And he used part of it for fuel, for burning. He was going to be out there for a while camping, and so he cut up part of it and used it for burning, and he took some of it and he warmed himself. In this story, he built and kindled a fire, and he baked bread on it. But then he does something really interesting. With the rest of the wood, he took and he fashioned a god and worshipped it. He made an idol and he bowed down to it. So with half the wood, he burned in the fire and he prepared his meal. He roasted his meat, he made his bread and he ate his fill. But from the rest, this carpenter took his tape measure and he measured it out. And he took and made an outline with his chalk and he roughed it out with chisels and with rasps, and he took his square and measured, and he shaped it, as the story goes, in human form. Human form in all its glory, that it should dwell in a shrine. So he took half the wood and made a fire, and he took half the wood and he made a god, his idol, and he bowed down to it, and he worshipped it. And he prayed to it and says, Save me, you are my God. Story sound familiar? Story's not just one I read online or made up. The story's from Isaiah chapter 44. And in that story, Isaiah is laboring to say this. How idiotic, how silly, how stupid is it that someone would go into the woods and cut down a tree and they'd use half of it to build their fire. They know it's wood. He's a carpenter after all. And then they may fashion it and make the other half a god in worship. I was thinking about this story in Isaiah 44, and I thought of another illustration. We might think it's really silly to make a wood idol. But I wonder if that carpenter would have thought this was a really silly idol. I wonder if they would have thought, how weird that they would spend so much time and attention on this. Really? See, our hearts are idol factories, and they will worship something. And it might be made out in the form of a man, out of wood, or it might be in a little box, but we will worship something. It may be a person, it may be an object, it may be a Twitter handle, it may be popularity, it may be any number of things. We will worship. And man has been trying to make God into his image for centuries. In fact, since the beginning, God has been making, man has been making God in his image. We know that God made man in his image, but we've flipped that around. We've mistaken that. We've erred in that, and we've made God in our image, wondering what he's like. If God was a man, what would he be like? And we've speculated and we've made idols until, until this. We no longer had to speculate. Until we had one who is the exact 
imprint of his nature until we had one who is the visible expression of God's invisible glory. You know the one I'm talking about, don't you? It's the focus of our attention this semester. Yea, it's the focus of our intention if you're a Christian for the rest of your life. Jesus is so much like God that in John 14, when Philip said, shortly after Jesus had said, on the way, the truth, and the, the way, the truth, and the life, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, Philip, and still you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has what? Seen the Father. What a profound statement. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. This is really a mind-boggling thing if we stop to think about it. We talked about on the very first night, maybe six, eight weeks ago at the kickoff barbecue, remember that? The historical reliability of Jesus is beyond dispute. It's indisputable that Jesus lived and walked this earth. And yet you and I can go a day almost without a thought of the fact that God became man. What a mind-boggling thing. What a wonderful idea. God took on a body. And tonight, we're going to set ourselves on a course to discover his humble humanity. I know no better place to do that, to uncover that and to expound on that in Scripture than the great book of Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me or click with me to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, you'll find a very well-known passage. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Perhaps if this is your first, second, or third night, or if you're not even a Christian, you've never even heard of Philippians. Philippians is a book in the New Testament after Galatians, <coughs> Ephesians. Uh, go eat popcorn, Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, then Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we find this. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." If you like to take notes or if you're an orderly person, you might want to know this is your first point. Humanity appreciated. Humanity appreciated. Now Paul uses a term in our text here, the word or the term form of God, very specifically to communicate to the reader the fact that Jesus is God. Paul uses a term to denote the essential, unchanging, intrinsic quality of Jesus. He existed in the morphe, the form of God. That is to say, he was exactly like God. Jesus is God. And Matt labored last week from the scriptures to help us realize that scripture testifies of this. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is God. But listen to me when I say to you, there's more to the story. There's more to the story. Jesus, as God, though he existed in the form of God, he did not 
cling to his deity. He did not grasp in a way that he would hold on to its advantages. No, Jesus, as God, humbled himself. I want you this evening to wade over with me to the deep end of the theological pool as we explore what's known as the doctrine of kenosis. The doctrine of kenosis. This is far beyond just a big word. The word comes, though, from our text. This is the doctrine of Christ's self-emptying. The word translated in our text, emptied, is kanao. It's from the word kenosis. What is the doctrine of kenosis? It's the doctrine of Christ's self-emptying. He emptied himself as a part of his incarnation. The verb expresses Christ's self-renunciation, a self-imposed kenosis. No one made Jesus do this. No, he self-renunciated his glory. It was a self-willed sacrifice and a setting aside, get this, of independent authority. His refusal to cling to his advantages as God and his privileges as God, to me it's one of the most wowing statements about Jesus in all of Scripture. This passage, Philippians 2, not unlike our series, goes from the heights and the beauty of eternity's past with God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son in perfect harmony all the way to the depths of his execution in shame on a tree. The God who, I might remind you, created this tree, created all things, is above all things, and is first in all things, has epitomized humility by emptying himself. The God, as one commentator put it, the God who has a right to everything in his, and who is fully satisfied within himself, emptied himself. Let me tell you what he did not do so we don't misunderstand this doctrine of kenosis. He did not exchange his deity for humanity. He did not stop becoming God. He did not empty himself, that is to say, of his deity. He did not become sub-God. He did not become a demigod, demigod or have his deity taken away from or borrowed or loaned out. But no, make no mistake about what he did do. He does renounce his divine privileges. He does set aside independent use of his attributes. He does entirely submit himself to the Father. He does not claim his authority as God. Though he could, he lays his claim aside and he empties himself. He empties himself of his glory, of his right to exercise power. Think with me for a minute about what Jesus gave up. Not in deity, because there was nothing to be sacrificed in substance in deity. But think about what he gave up, not in deity, but in privilege and in position. This is tough for us to wrap our minds around, but let's try. Here's a verse that we've talked about last three weeks, three consecutive weeks. Now remember it, John 17, 5. Jesus is praying and he says this, Lord, uh, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before this world was. Where was Jesus before this world was? Existing in perfect harmony with God the Father and God the Spirit. We catch glimpses, don't we, in the Gospels of this glory. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration, but they're only that. Just glimpses of this. 
So employ in your minds with me, not momentarily, but more fixedly, more permanently, the truth that the harmony with which the Godhead had before the incarnation, yea, before the world was, was incredible. It was unspoiled. It was beautiful. It was impeccable. It's a kind of communion and harmony with God that none of us have ever known in this life. He gave up that. He gave that up to become to become a slave. <laughs> Can you believe it? He took on the appearance of a bondservant, our text says. He was made in the likeness of man. He gave up heavenly glory, independent authority, divine prerogatives, eternal riches, praise unending to become a slave. A slave to sweat, to work, to bleed, and to have his beard pulled out, to die in anguish unknown on a tree. This God became a slave. Amazing. You know how I know that none of us can grasp this and that none of us in this moment grasp this like we could or should because we're all still sitting or standing in our place. This doctrine is flooring that Jesus would descend, that he would empty himself, that he would undergo the kenosis to become a man. He gave up paradise and harmony of almost inestimable value to descend into the ooze and the slime of humanity. <laughs> what a thing. British author C.S. Lewis, who you know is a master wordsmith, but who we should read with some discretion, wrote a book entitled Miracles. Miracles. In his chapter called The Grand Miracle, Lewis describes the incarnation of Christ. Let me read it to you. In the Christian story, God descended to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of the absolute being into time, into space, down into humanity, down into the very roots of the seabed of the nature that he created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring that ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in the midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through the green and warm water into the black and cold water, down through the increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand, dripping, the precious thing he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now, and they have come up into the light down below where it lay colorless, dark. He lost his color too. So it is, he writes, in our moral and emotional life, death and birth, go down to go up. It's a key principle. Through this bottleneck, this belittlement, Lewis says, the high road nearly always lies. 
while illustrious and creative as this picture is, I doubt that we'll ever wrap our minds around this beauty entirely. In his life, we see the humility of humanity. His humble humanity. He who washed putrefied feet of men while they spewed arguments about who is greater. He who rode on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem, into a city that he could have instantly overthrown around and amongst people who would less than a week later betray him. I don't know about you, but I would have been tempted to stand up and throw in the towel. Wouldn't you? And think about it. You're stooping to wash the disciples' feet. Three years you've spent with these men, 12 of them. You know, one of them is going to betray you. But you're washing the crusted, disgusting feet of the other men. And they are busy arguing about who's the greatest. Can you imagine? Uh, Some of you would have at least snapped them with the towel, wouldn't you? (laughs) How infuriating this could have been. And yet the humble bondservant submits himself. Instead of standing up, And overthrowing, he took the place of a bondservant. He identified with sinners as a slave to humanity and as a slave to God. Now, now that we've seen what was set aside, let's see what was put on. Now that we've seen and understood more properly the kenosis, let's take a moment not just to understand and assume his humanity, but to defend it. That's point number two on your sheet. Humanity defended Humanity defended. I want you to turn to 1 John. Go from Philippians to the letter of 1 John. Not the gospel of John, but a little letter nearly at the end of your Bible. Not far in front of Revelation. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Turn to 1 John. Why, you might ask, must we defend his humanity? Because it wasn't always like it is today. You know, Matt did a beautiful job of defending from the text last week, Christ's deity. And there have certainly been times in history where we've needed to defend, it, defend Christ's deity from the scriptures. But there have also been marked times in history where we've had to defend Christ's humanity. It's not always been an assumed thing like we might say it is today. In fact, not too long after the time of Christ, a doctrine rose up or a sect or a cult or a heresy rose up called docetism. Docetism was a doctrine, a damning doctrine, that taught people that Jesus wasn't fully human, that he was spirit. It rose out of, you might remember, the age-old Gnosticism that had a false dichotomy between matter and spirit. And because they believed matter was evil and spirit was good, they didn't believe Jesus could be matter. They didn't believe that he could be human. So they said he wasn't a man. And heresies like this have existed in the history of the church. So we don't just want to passively look over this. I want to take time to defend Jesus' deity. And while many authors of the New Testament deal that damning doctrine, a death blow, one in particular uses very intentional language that I want you to see that leaves us with no conjecture, no conjecture as to whether Christ was really a human. Look at right at the beginning of 1 John chapter 1. That's how he uh, introduces or how he starts the book. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing to you? I hope it is. It's amazing to me that nearly 50 years after John walked with Jesus, he would pen this and talk about Jesus as if it was as fresh in his mind as it happened yesterday. Jesus walked intimately with John, and John walked intimately with Jesus. As such, John employs three senses here, hearing, seeing, and touching, to assure people that Jesus was not merely a spirit or a demigod, but entirely human, fully God, fully man. This testimony by sight and touch is what, as you know, fills the pages of the Gospels. But consider for a moment that this is the same disciple. Get this. Uh, If you've zoned out, zoom in. Let me see your eyes. This is the same disciple that in John 13, 23, the Last Supper, would lay his head, get this, on the bosom of Jesus. Right on Jesus' chest. Explain to you, paint you a picture a little bit. Here's how the Last Supper worked. In those days, the Jews had adopted, kind of from Persia, uh, the idea of laying down or eating, laying on their side. And they would lay on their left on their left arm with their feet back behind them. I'm not going to lay down on the stage because you couldn't see me, but you get the idea. Pretend I'm laying. <laughs> and they're all around the table, and guess who's right here, right in front of me? John is. And John lays his head, he reclines his head on Jesus' bosom. What intimacy. It doesn't get any more human than that, does it? No, Jesus walked with John. John walked with Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. They shared intimate fellowship. So consider that language and that picture in John 13, 23. And then consider this. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is in, you know what it says? The bosom of the Father. He has made him known. What's the idea? Consider Jesus, who before he descended into the ooze and slime of humanity, existed in the Godhead in perfect harmony, resting his head, metaphorically, on the bosom of the Father. Total intimacy. Total and perfect communion. Yet this the divine and only Son who lived in closest communion with the Father descended. So this mutual intimacy could be shared not just between the Son and the Father and the Spirit. No, He laid aside, even laying aside, even severed, even shattered His intimacy at the cross with God the Father. So John, who is a man like you and I, could share sweet harmony with Jesus. This is amazing. What humility. Do you see what's been done? It's marvelous. The one who saw, the one who touched, the one who heard, the one who would defend him all the way to the grave, the one who declined or reclined on Jesus' bosom, knew him and said he was man. What better evidence can we have, you might think? Well, let me just work through some proofs here with you. 
not exhaustively, but just to give you a sampling. First, that Jesus was human emotionally. He was human emotionally. That is to say, he had human sentiments. We see that he had anger as he cleansed the temple, Mark 21 and uh, Matthew 21 and Mark 3, 5. We see that he had grief and sorrow. You remember that he wept over Lazarus before he raised him from the dead. We understand that he had compassion. Remember that he had compassion on Israel as those scattered like sheep without a shepherd. He was a human emotionally, but he was also human, number two, physically. That's to say he had a human body. He operated as a human physically. We understand that he was tired, Mark 4 and John 4, 6. We understand that he was hungry, Matthew 4, 2. We also see that Jesus was thirsty, that he grew thirsty on the cross and other places. We understand, of course, that he was born of a woman. doesn't get much more human than that that he had finally the capacity to bleed and to die as a human. Thirdly, he was a human intellectually. He was a human intellectually. He had a human mind. He was limited in knowledge, sometimes we see in the Gospels. He set aside independently his omniscience. Now, did he exercise that sometimes? You bet. But sometimes he was limited in knowledge. He also grew and developed and learned like any human does. Now, he may have learned faster because his mind and body wasn't tainted and uh, wrecked with sin, not clouded with sin. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, I'm in some classes, not at MSU anymore, but in some seminary classes. And I know many of you are in classes. Wouldn't it be nice to learn with a mind that wasn't tainted with sin? <laughs> you imagine not having to relearn everything again and again? And yet Jesus learned. He learned and grew in stature and favor with God and man. But you move number three, and finally to number three on your notes, humanity apprehended. Humanity apprehended. This gives us a picture of humanity. Jesus gives us a picture of humanity, and he gives us one, get this, untainted by sin, and he shows us that the problem is not with being human, it's with being fallen. Did you catch that? Jesus, as the God-man, shows us that the problem is not being human, but it's being fallen. I want to explore further with you his humble humanity as it relates to implications in Christianity, in your life, in James' life, in John's life, in Megan's life, in Alyssa's life, in all of our lives. The first is this, sympathy administrated, or administered, sympathy administered. The first reason Jesus' humble humanity, his kenosis, was important for you and I is because it gives us hope that Jesus administers sympathy. Did you catch that? Jesus, the God-man, administers sympathy. How does he do that, you might ask? Hebrews 4.15, I'll read this for you. For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been what? Tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Jesus, the God-man, lived and was tempted in every way that we are, yet is without sin. It is because of this that he can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with us. You might think, Tanner, was Jesus really tempted with things like pornography? Was he tempted with pornography? Was he tempted to pick this up and to go on a site? Well, no, he wasn't tempted to pick up an iPhone and go on a site, but he was tempted, believe me, with sexual morality, with sexual sin, and he withstood it. In those days, things were lewd. They were loose, and there was prostitutes all around. You can be sure that Jesus was tempted, that he was tested. 
in all the same ways that we have been, in the same categories that we have been, and yet it says he was without sin. We talk about this in this language, the impeccability of Christ, the fact that he was without sin. It's important for you and I to understand that it's not that Jesus was not able to sin, not like he had a Teflon coating or a protective armor suit around him so he couldn't uh, sin. It's not that he was not able to sin, but it's that he was able not to sin. Did you catch that? It's not that he was not able to sin, it's that he was able not to sin. Christ's temptation, get this, is an issue not of his stature, not of his nature, but of his will, of his will. And that gives you and I great hope, doesn't it? It gives us great hope in overcoming sin, and it gives us great hope because Jesus can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with us because he was tempted in the same way that we are and yet never gave in. It also gives us hope because salvation is available. Number two, salvation is available. The second reason that Christ's humble humanity, his kenosis, is important for you and I is that, get this, it made salvation available. What do I mean by this? Well, take, for example, a passage like Galatians 4, 4 through 5. It says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive Adoption as sons. Get this, Christ's humanity makes atonement possible. It makes atonement possible in that he was obliged to obey every law, that he was obligated to obey every law that every other man was, every law that you and I were obligated to obey, Jesus was. What's the difference? He obeyed him. He lived perfectly, and in doing so, Living under the law and obeying the law, he made salvation possible. Hebrews says he became like us in every way. This was so we could receive adoption. Had Jesus not been God, the exchange at the cross would not have been efficient, would not have been effective for our salvation. Had Jesus not been man, his death on the cross would not have been effective for you and I in our salvation. Jesus had to be both God and man. Why, you might ask? Point number three, salvation accomplished. Salvation accomplished. This is very important for you to understand as a Christian. In God's economy, sin demands death. You, you know this. The soul that sins must die. Uh, the wages of sin is death. But God gave us a way out. How? Through death. If you're looking for a verse to memorize, write this one down. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And this is God speaking. I have given it to you on the altar to make, get this, atonement for your souls. For the blood, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. You recognize what's going on here? Sin demands death. The only way to appease God is with Death, because sin demands death. And every time someone or uh, something sins, it should die. It should be cut off. But God, in his forbearance and in his patience and providing another way, gives an opportunity for atonement. How is that atonement made? Through blood. Why? Because blood represents life. He says here, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Why all the sacrifices? Hebrews 10 4 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never atone. They were just symbolic. They were just foreshadowing. They could never atone. 
And yet Hebrews 9.22 says that one could almost say, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We're left in a paradox. If the blood of bulls and goats could never atone, and yet blood must be shed, someone must die if there and when there is sin, and sin, as you and I know, living in a fallen world is rampant, someone had to bleed and die and suffer under God's wrath, so you and I didn't have to. And that's exactly what Jesus did. As God and as man, he made, he made atonement not only possible, but accomplishing it through his death on the cross. But not everyone here, not everyone in this world receives the spiritual adoption, this atonement from Christ's blood. And John, in his letter, gives many ways to test if someone is a true believer. You know what one of those tests is? It's this, that Jesus was a man. You're still in 1 John. Turn over to chapter 4. Chapter 4. And look with me at verse 2 and 3. John writes this. By this you know the Spirit of God. He's just got down telling him you need to test the spirits. And here's how you know the spirits. This is the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses what? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What's he saying? Everyone, every person who says that Jesus came in the flesh, that he's real man, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, uh, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Listen, if you don't confess Christ as God in the flesh, you're not of Christ. In fact, you're the antithesis of what it means to be a true follower of Christ. You're not really saved. In fact, you deny Christ and are on the devil's side. You are against Christ if you refuse to acknowledge that Christ was a man. That's a real test of salvation. Did you know that? Well, finally, salvation animated. Salvation animated. The fourth and final reason that Christ's humble humanity and kenosis is important for you and I is because it shows us how to walk worthy of our calling. You say, Tanner, why would you use the word salvation animated? Why animated? Because it's a really good word? No, because I need another A and it fits in your little sheet. So don't worry. If you want to write, <laughs> if you want to write salvation lived out or salvation walked, salvation animated. Second Peter 2 Verse 21, for this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. Get this, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Christ's humanity is of paramount importance because it provides a roadmap for you and I when it comes to suffering and holy living. Christ is our supreme example when it comes to walking the way God wants us to walk. Peter tells us that we ought to follow his steps in this way. Whatever the circumstances here tonight, whatever the circumstances God employs in your life for the rest of your life, Peter says, look to Christ. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father who he says always does what is right. Jesus set the example here, and we ought to do likewise. If you want to learn more about this, I suspect that you should come next week when Deontay will teach us on the suffering and the persecution of Christ. 
First John 2, 6, who can forget this, says, he that abides in him, or he that says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way which he walks. Anyone who claims to be a Christian here tonight should work to walk as Jesus walked. Little Christs we should be. Walking as he walked. He set the example. He paved the way. He is salvation animated. Can I tell you our heart as leadership just a little bit? Just bring you into what and why we do what we do. Why are we teaching through the person and work of Jesus Christ? Why this series on the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God? It's because this. We've been very heavy on practice in our series. We talked about the one another's, what it looks like to interact inside a church and with one another. And we talked about being spiritual ambassadors to the world and going and doing the work of ministry and evangelism and in discipleship. We've been very uh, oriented towards working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's a good thing. Make no mistake. I don't expect that we'll ever escape from the implications of the text or the application of the text to our lives. Far be it from us that we ever should. We don't want to look in the mirror of the word and remain unchanged. But the reason we're taking a step back and going from this, looking at ourselves, to turning our faces to the cross is this. We want you with us to behold our God. We want you to behold Christ. Do you remember what Scott said during the advanced conference? He said, for every one time you look at yourself, 20 times you should look at Jesus. And I want you tonight, not removed from application, not removed from implications of the text, I want you to step back and behold our God. The one who descended into the ooze and the slime of humanity. The one who rose from the dead victorious and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God on high. The one that even tonight for the true believers intercedes for us at the right hand of God. Behold our God. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way up, friends, is the way down in humble submission to the reigning king of the universe. Paul had these words for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes, for your sakes, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, who humbled himself and bled and died as a sacrificial lamb, did it that we might be spiritually rich, that we might have fellowship, yea, harmony with the God of the universe for all of eternity. May we receive the benefits tonight of his humility 
and his suffering and starting tonight and for the rest of our lives, may we learn from his example and rejoice and walk in his humility. We pray with me. Join your hearts with me as I pray on behalf of all of us this prayer from an old book called Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, and that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the crown is to wear, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that in the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. In the deeper the well, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find in thy light, thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, and thy glory in my valley. You know our hearts tonight, Lord, whether they're humble before you or stand proud as your enemy. Ask that you'd crush and break every proud heart here tonight, that you'd humble it before you, that you'd cause it to turn to you in faith and repentance. And Lord, for those of us who do know you and have repented, that you would give us grace to walk in humility and that you would help us, above all, to behold our God, to behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is our prayer, our desire, our wish, and we ask it to the praise of your name. Amen.